Good morning. Did you notice, um, most of you didn't notice because you don't care. You're heartless. But um, they only put this up here when I teach. Now, that's ageism. It's a, it's a new term, term I just invented, ageism. And it is the worst of all the isms. And I'm morally outraged and deeply offended right now. In fact, I don't think I even want to talk. Okay. Okay, just because you're special. Well, we're about to tackle the um, mother of all God questions. This is the one that gets the most uh, press. The greatest number of hands go up uh, as to, is this the question? And it is the question. And the question's really simple. We'll put it in one sentence. How can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow suffering in his world? Do you see the conundrum? There is a logical impossibility here. At first glance, the nature of God presents us with a logical impossibility. How can an all-powerful, yet all-loving God allow suffering in his world? The Bible tells us that God is infinitely powerful. There is nothing he can't do and nothing he can't fix. But it also tells us that he is infinitely loving. So when we suffer, our immediate prayers uh, are not answered. When our immediate prayers are not answered, we are suffering. And we're tempted to believe either one of two statements. The first one is, God is not powerful enough to help me. The second one is, God does not love me enough to help me. And we're forced logically to choose between one of these two. If we take a God who's not powerful enough to help me, we have a loving God who's a good company and a little bit of comfort because we don't suffer alone, but we have no hope for answered prayers. And we begin to depreciate God's power in our mind until he just becomes uh, uh, some sort of comfort. If we say he's powerful, well, that must now mean then that he doesn't love me enough to help me. And now we live under fear. We have this tremendously powerful God. We're essentially living under religion. I've got to find ways to please him enough to try to get him to help me, but he doesn't really love me enough to help me, so if I work really hard at it, I can earn his, uh, his response, and I can earn his power, and uh, maybe I can get him to do it, not because he loves me, but because I've jumped through hoops. Yeah, they're both wrong, aren't they? You either have a comforting religion that's powerless and kind of pointless, or you have a powerful religion that's threatening, and the hammer's always over your head, and you're always on the treadmill to try to get your suffering alleviated. And you know, by the way, this suits Satan just fine. He doesn't care which one of these lies you buy into. He's absolutely fine. Take your pick. Just as long as you believe one of these two lies. It's an effective strategy, isn't it? And in the face of it, it appears to be absolutely inescapable. 
It creates this, this conundrum. On the face of it, it looks like an inescapable conundrum until we ask one more question. And here's the question, and we're going to actually do a poll right now because I'm very curious in what the answer to this question is. So could we turn the lights up just for a moment? Hmm? This is it? We come to this church to be enlightened? Okay, never mind. I'm just going to try hard to count you. I'm going to ask you a question. Here's the question. If you had to choose, if you had to choose, which would you choose? A world in which there is love, but some pain, or a world in which there is no love and no pain? Think about it for a minute. You can either have a world in which there is love, but there's going to be some pain, or you can have a world where there is no love and no pain. You made your choice? Okay, how many people right now would choose a world in which there is love and some pain? Oh, my. Uh, wow. Okay, pretty much. Uh, how many of you would choose a world in which there is no love and no pain? Anybody? Okay, we're 100%. We're 100%. Put another way, which is more important to you? A world with love or a world without pain? And we've answered unanimously, a world of love is more important to me than a world without pain. Love is just too wonderful and too important to us to give up for the sake of avoiding pain. Love is just too important to us to give up simply for avoiding pain. (laughs) Have you ever heard this? Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved. Alfred Lord Tennyson. Love makes the world go round from the musical carnival. All you need is love. Da-da-da-da-da. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. Do-do-do, do-do-do. And who did that? It pains me that there was not a unanimous chant of the Beatles. If you're ever playing Trivial Pursuit and they ask you a musical question, you don't have to think. You just go, the Beatles. And you usually win. And on and on and on it goes. How many songs can you think of written to celebrate no pain? I've never heard one. How many songs have you heard that celebrate love? Hundreds of thousands of them. Am I suggesting that you cannot have love without pain? Can can you have love Without pain. I don't think so. Because listen. 
Love can be rejected. And in rejection, there is suffering. You know, we talk about the sufferings of Jesus on the cross. Long before he went to the cross, the Bible describes his primary suffering. His primary suffering was he came unto his own. And his own received him not. Rejection is the consequence of risking love. If we're going to have love, there's a possibility of rejection. And rejection is always suffering. In God's world, the answer is always yes. Love always carries with it the possibility of rejection and pain. And this is important to understand. As far as God is concerned, love is everything. God does not value love. He is love. God does not merely choose sometimes to love. He is love. Love is his quintessential nature. I've said this so many times, but, you know, we're selling an invisible God to the world. You can't, I, I, how do I demonstrate him? I mean, uh, he, he's, he's a spirit. He, he's here, but you can't see him. And, and God defined himself in the Bible a number of ways. The first time he did, Moses, in the presence of the burning bush, trying to get out of the job of going back to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel, he said, God, you know, who, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? And God is so helpful, so, so helpful to poor little pathetic, frightened Moses. And God says, well, tell him I am that I am sent you. You can see Moses going, excuse me? Like, what? what? I am that I am sends you. Thank you, that was really helpful. I mean, theologians have been struggling with, he is that he is. The question of his self-existence, a being without beginning or end? I mean, wrap your mind around that. But in the New Testament, God defined himself, I am that I am, is five words. He defined himself in three words. God is love. Nobody ever has a problem understanding that. If it's true, it's the best news we've ever heard. The glue that holds the universe together is love. We were created by love, through love, to love. It is the definition of our purpose. It is our identity because it is our creator's identity. He is love. Well, if he is love, he has to be a relationship. Right? Love always has a beloved. There's a lover and a beloved. There's always an object of love. You don't love nothing at all. You can't love nothing at all. He's a relationship of love between three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But because his love is infinite, he is always looking for more people to love. 
Because his love is intimate, he's never satisfied in the number of people that he's got in the family right now. He always wants to add another baby. And he will go on adding other babies until he wraps up human history. We were created by love for love. So far, so good. That's good news. But it creates a problem. What must exist for us to be in love? Freedom. We must be free to love. If I extort you, if I put a gun to your, your head and say, tell me you love me, you'll probably tell me you love me. But that's not love. That's extortion. If I pay you a $10 million and I say, love me, and you say, yes, I bought a trophy wife. That's not love. Love has to be freely given. Or it's not love at all. If it's force, it's robotic. Automatons. I went to Disneyland a long time ago and I went to the country bear jamboree. And I sat down in the country bear jamboree and my God, uh, all these things on the wall started moving and talking to me. And then they sang to me and they told me how much they loved me. And it was heartwarming, but it wasn't. It was cheesy. Because they're not real. They're automatons. They're speaking things they've been programmed to do. I never thought, I, I mean, I thought it was sweet, okay? I thought it was kind of cute. But I didn't ever for a minute think I was being loved by these things on the wall. They're not free. It's not love. Love requires freedom. And for this reason, people, for this reason, for the sake of love which requires freedom, we were all created with the ability to say no to God's love. You don't have to say yes to His love. Unfortunately, saying no to God's love means opting out of His plans for our lives and His plans for creation and His plans for the human race. And when we opt out of His plans... Because of our freedom, bad things happen. And we call these bad consequences of our free moral choices, we call these bad consequences sins. You see, sins is just what happens. The consequences. The sin is a pre-existing thing. The pre-existing thing is saying no to His love. We opted out of this perfect plan for us. That's sin. Sin is saying no to love. Saying no to Him. And then these consequences follow. You look up in the Bible, the meaning of the word for sin, the first meaning you find is missing the mark. Quote, unquote. In other words, when we opt out of God's plan for our lives, we miss the mark of His perfect will for us. And this means we experience something other than His perfect protection other than his perfect blessing, we experience suffering. Not because he planned it or wanted it, but because it is absolutely essential for love to exist. There must be freedom. Now, in human history, this started in the garden a long, long time ago with just one bad choice. But when you compound 
I used to do a lot of sailing off the coast of British Columbia, and, and we'd cross large expanses of water to, to get to the next stop. And many hours out there, and I would sit down with the charts. It was Guys, it was before GPS. You ad, actually had to know stuff to get somewhere. You actually had to plan it in advance, and you'd take your protractor and your, your uh, double slide rules, and you get the chart out, and you, you measure the, 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 the wind, and you measure the current that's drifting that's going to push you off course, and you make corrections for all these factors, and then you, you, get your, you, get your, you get your course plotted on the chart, and, you, and then you transfer it to your compass, and you get up there, and you leave land behind. In a few hours, you can't see land behind, and you can't see land in front. And you're just following that course, right there on that course that you figured out on the chart. And here's what happens. About halfway across, you start to say to yourself, I wonder if I made a mistake. Now, all I have to do is make a one degree or less than one degree mistake at the beginning. But if I, if I tip it to the port side, just a, even a half a degree, over all those miles, when I get to the other side, I won't know what I've hit. And I'm shooting for a, the, on the charts they put uh, physical, physical things that you can look for as you get close to your destination, and there was a, a chimney, a, a big tower that was at the town that I was headed for. Believe me, about five or six hours into the trip, you start praying to see that chimney. Because if I'm to the left of it, I don't know where I am. And if I'm to the right of it, I don't know where I am. And now I'm in trouble. A one degree change at the beginning will be compounded over time until you are so far off course, you have yourself a disaster. So it starts in the garden with a one degree, tiny little act of opting out of his plan and his perfect will and compounded over time it begins to affect our very nature our human nature which was designed for to make good choices but given freedom has now started to make bad choices and sadly none of those bad choices are neutral they're not innocuous they all have effect upon our personality our thinking our character They even begin to affect our physical nature. And these mistakes compound over time. And the Bible says, and this is profound, that our bad choices have even begun to affect nature. Nature. He says, nature is in a state of rebellion from God. How the heck does this happen? Because we opted out of His plan. You know, the most painful disease we face is often cancer. The big C. The one deep in our hearts we all fear more than anything else. Do you know that cancer is nothing but rebellion at the molecular level? It is a cell saying, I will not obey the DNA that designed me for a certain rate of reproduction. I will go wild and I will reproduce at a rate that is absolutely horrendous and destructive and I will take over the whole body with my reproduction until I've destroyed it. It's rebellion against God's plan and design for our bodies at the molecular level. Isn't that interesting? 
and our failure, our bad moral choices to steward the natural world, to take care of the natural world in which we live, has resulted in the pollution of our water, our soil, our air, and our food. And these pollutants cause much of the suffering our world is currently experiencing. And none of this was by God's design. It was and is a consequence of bad, ungodly, opting out of his love choices. Do you get it? Does this make sense? I mean, look what we've done to creation. Now, some of you might be thinking, and this is what I would think, well, yeah, all that's true. And, like, there's a mess. And I get that we're responsible for the mess, at least most of it. But if he really loved us, he would step in and fix the consequences of our bad choices. Shouldn't he do that? I mean, isn't that the loving thing to do? Most of us would say, yes, come on, get involved, intervene. But think about it. If every time you did something wrong, God stepped in and immediately altered the consequences, would your action be free? Actions over which there are no logical consequences are meaningless. When we remove the ability to complete a wrong action, the actor is no longer free. You with me? If every time you have a bad thought and you go to do something with that selfish, bad, nasty thought and I have the control and the ability to step in and deny you the ability to complete your thought and see the action to, to, to completion and I do that every time you make a bad choice, your freedom is gone. I have substituted my will for your will and your actions are meaningless. For there to be love, we must be free to say no to God's love. Love requires choosers, not clones. Suffering is the consequence of freedom, and freedom is the necessary precondition for love. Love is the paramount value in God's world and in our lives. For the sake of love, God will allow suffering. For the sake of love, we will even choose suffering. Ahead of time, premeditated. Soldiers do it in every war for nothing more than the love of country. My God, think about it. A concept, okay? Democracy. Freedom. My country. An idea is important enough for men and women to lay down their lives and die for that idea. For the love of country, people will allow themselves to die and choose it. Love is the highest state of human experience that we are capable of. Love is what gives our lives purpose and meaning. Without it, we are clever animals and nothing more. Love is what makes us human. Where does, this, where does this leave us with this conundrum of all this power and this loving God who also allows suffering? Well, the Bible has 
absolute brilliance in its answer. The psalmist Asaph gives the answer in Psalm 73. And he's, you gotta, let me paint the picture of this psalm. He has been watching evil men make evil choices all around him in his society and destroying people's lives and getting away literally with murder. And the suffering he's watching that this evil brings has completely overcome him and he doesn't know what to do or what to think. And this is what he says. But as for me, this is Psalm 73, verses 2 to 5. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. In other words, I, I, I couldn't handle this. I can't maintain my balance or my stability. It's a, it's a metaphor. I can't understand what's going on. It's completely ruining me. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're getting away with all this stuff, and they're prospering, and everything's going well for them, and this is completely wrong. This is morally outrageous, and it isn't fair because bad things are happening to me and it's hard and I'm a good person and they're a bad person. And this is completely unjust and why am I suffering and what's God going to do about it? And they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens of common man like me. They're not plagued by human ills. And he goes on and says, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me. Listen. Listen. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, until I came in to his presence, until I found him, then I understood their destiny. Surely, God, you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. And finally, This is my point. He comes to the most profound truth in the Bible to me and the place of true peace. And I've meditated on this verse for the last five years. And this verse sustains me. And this verse corrects my crazy thinking, my frustrations, the suffering that we continue to endure through illness. This verse corrects so much of the problems I see in my life. And it has become my goal This is my goal for how I want to live as a Christian. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. If I can find him, if I can come into his presence, if I can make contact with him, if I can be with him, his presence alone frees me from all of those other issues about what's going on in my life. And they're not important compared to what happens when I make contact with them and come into his presence. It's the truth, man. I mean, it's like, look, I live with a woman who's been in pain for 20 years. And I don't know anybody that does a better job of living above her pain than she does. But she's been in constant pain, and now it's worse than it was last year. And there's nothing I can do about it. And you begin to wonder. Where is God in all this? 
I find him in the morning. And we make contact, spirit to spirit, heart to heart, mind to mind. And he begins to manifest his peace. And I begin to experience his peace. The other questions honestly are not relevant. They're just not that relevant because I've found his presence. What Asaph is saying here is that the answer to our deepest questions and doubts is often not a propositional truth, but a presence. What we need most is not an answer to the difficult question. It's his presence in our life. In the presence of God, the question is no longer of concern. If we can find him in our suffering, then we have found the comfort we need. And he can always be found in our suffering. Listen, if you haven't found him in your suffering, you just haven't found him yet in your suffering. Because he's present in your suffering. Our God is wonderful because for the sake of love, he allows suffering, but he will always enter into our suffering with us. He feels what we feel and he shares our pain. I have time to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about this, where I learned this. It was back in the 80s and uh, I had a church in Canada and we were experiencing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we'd seen a a lot of healings, and it was a very, very powerful time, and we were full of faith. And one of my best friends, they were having their um, second baby. It was a little girl. And about the fifth month, the doctors told her that the baby was hydrocephalic and would be born probably without a brain and die within uh, half an hour or so. And picture, we're full of faith. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of a healing revival. We're seeing amazing healings happen. So we, we pray with all this faith for her. And we saw the Spirit touching her in, in all the ways that were characteristic of, of physical healing. So we were sure, you know, sure that this baby was going to be okay. And we had faith, people. I mean... We had the faith to move mountains. And I was there at the hospital when the baby was born. And the baby was born completely hydrocephalic and died within a half an hour. And I was with her in the room after this. We were sitting side by side on two chairs. And the chairs had armrests. So I was sitting there and she was in this chair and her arm was on the armrest and it was like this. He was asking me, how can God allow this? Where's his love? Where's his power? How, 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 can, how can God let this happen? We prayed. We had faith. We did everything right. Why? I had no answer. I'm not going to preach this sermon to her. That's heartless. I'm sitting there beside her. 
wondering, what do I say to her? There's nothing to say to her. And I look. It's one of the one or two open-eyed visions that I've ever had. I think it's only two, and this was the first. I was just looking, wondering what to say, and I was looking at her arm. And a drop of water hit her arm. And another drop hit her arm. And then another. And I said, God, what am I seeing? What is this? And Jesus said, I'm here and I'm crying over her. I said, listen, I can't explain this to you, but right now, Jesus is here. And he's weeping over you, and he feels everything that you feel. And this loss doesn't just affect you. It affects him. And I don't know why we didn't get our prayers answered, but I know this. He is here. And he loves you. And he feels your pain. Our God is wonderful. Because even though for the sake of love he allows suffering, he will always enter into the suffering with us. He feels what we feel. And he shares our pain. Some of us, we don't have answers to our questions. And for the reason, for that reason that we don't have answers for our questions, we've pulled away from him. We still think he's good or we don't think he's powerful. We don't trust him like we used to because we've been frankly very disappointed. We don't want to quit on him because we're certain he's real and true. We just keep our distance. We keep it polite. Makes the devil so happy. Because all he ever really wanted was to keep us away from him anyway. He wants to be, God wants to be present with you in your suffering. He doesn't want you running away from him. What you really, really need is his presence. We run away from him with our pain. He always wanted that we would run to him with our pain. But he's always wanted. what a good father does. Bring me your pain. You're not alone. I'll give you my company. If you're here and 
your suffering has been keeping you from him or somebody else's suffering you've had to watch has been keeping you from him. It doesn't have to go on being this way. You can just make a decision. I'm going to bring my unanswered questions to you. I'm going to bring my suffering to you. And you can meet him and and he'll meet you in the middle of your suffering. And please listen, it'll make a difference. It might be all the difference you need. But boy, will it restore your relationship with him. Give you what you really want. What you really need. I I don't want to manipulate you, but... I also don't want to walk away without leaving a chance for this to happen, for us to take a step towards him with our suffering. You should never hear a powerful message without being given an opportunity to do something with it. So if you're here and you have been keeping some distance from him because of your suffering and you want to do something about that, We're going to have the prayer teams come up here again, if you wouldn't mind. And we want to have a chance to pray for you about this. That you would receive prayer, that you would find him in your your sufferings, that he would make himself real to you, that you would not feel alone. So if that's you, why don't you come forward now and we're going to pray for you and expect that he will be present for us. Why don't we do this so that it's not so conspicuous if you are going to be vulnerable and come forward in this way. Why don't we all stand and Josh is going to lead us in some worship. And uh, if this message struck you to the heart, which I would be absolutely shocked and absolutely would not believe that this did not strike someone, if not many, uh, this moment can be really life-changing for